When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, Arlen Schumer returns for part three of the Sean Connery James Bond canon, Goldfinger. They originally thought they were going to use his voice, but I think once they saw the rushes from the first scenes with him and the way he spoke English, they thought the movie was going to collapse. And I think they desperately found this other actor that could do his voice. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. 
comic book illustrator, pop culture historian Arlen Schumer is here. Part three of a four-part series on the first four films in the James Bond movie franchise, the canon as Arlen likes to refer to them. He's presenting a free webinar series on these four films where you'll see hard-to-find behind-the-scenes production photos, documentary films often shot by Bond crew members themselves, rare advertising films and promotional materials, the greatest hits, film clips and stills from each Connery Bond classic. So you'll not only see the first four Connery Bond films in a fresh new light, but through Schumer's trenchant commentary and insight, you'll also appreciate them anew in the context of their times as the beginnings of the modern action film and part and parcel of the creative pop culture explosion that was the 1960s. Hey, Arlen, welcome back. How are you, buddy? Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm great, and always thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So, film number three in the Connery Bond canon, Goldfinger. First to the particulars, when and how can people watch your webinar? Okay, so it's a free webinar on Zoom. It's going to be Wednesday night, May 19th at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um I post the information for the Zoom meeting uh, on my Facebook page. I post it on my website under the events uh, subpage of my website, which is, you know, arlenschumer.com. So as long as you spell my name right, you'll get there. And if you can't make it live, um, I record the webinar and I end up posting it later on either my YouTube channel or my um, Vimeo page and um, and again I post all that information uh, Facebook, social media I'm on Instagram, I'm on tw Tumblr, Twitter the, the usual suspects as they say and I don't have pseudonyms, everything is Arlen Schumer or at Arlen or whatever um, so that's how to uh, find me Alright, and if they go to the episode notes for this podcast and they just click on your name, it'll take them right to your website. It'll click right through to arlenschumer.com. Alright, so Goldfinger. I'm trying to remember if in the canon if this was your favorite. I'm thinking it might have been. Actually, no. No? And that's actually the, the, the best thing to start off with is that Goldfinger, I would say by consensus among Bond aficionados, all the things I've ever read both online and off, is basically the consensus favorite hmm. as as either greatest Bond film, best Bond film. Um, it's certainly the Bond film that broke the Bond phenomenon worldwide. Right. You know, it was building. Dr. No was successful. From Rush for the Love was even more successful. But it really wasn't until Goldfinger released in December of 64 that Bond mania truly began, and um, and all the all the spinoffs of Bond really come out of the Goldfinger era. Things like Man from Uncle, and you know the reason why they decided to make an Iron Man Flint film was because of the of the success of Goldfinger. Um, but the irony of it for me. As much of a Bond Connery fan I am, for some reason, I mean, I was a kid back then, I was young, but if you remember from our previous podcast, I saw Dr. No as a five and a half or six year old in a drive-in movie theater. 
and it's my first movie experience. Um, I saw From Russia Love the following year in summer camp, you know, when I was six years old. So precocious. Well, you know, <laughs> God bless American pop culture and my mother who raised my brother and I herself. She was a widow at when I was four months old. So I had, my brother and I had the happiest childhood of anybody we know and a lot of it was fueled by the incredible, you know, pop culture it, that that make up what we call the 1960s, which is the greatest decade, I think, of, of pop culture. If you just think of what are called the three Bs, you know, Beatlemania, Bondmania, and Batmania. Right, you know, right. They, they followed each other in, in, you know, successive order. But here's the thing. To jump ahead to Goldfinger, 1965, that was my first Bond movie in a theater. I remember going to it. I was seven years old. But for some reason, and I don't know why, we missed Goldfinger. Now, my brother and I, we were watching television. I remember seeing the beginning of Man From U.N.C.L.E. on TV in the fall of 64. I remember Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea debuting in the fall of 64. There must have been commercials for Goldfinger. We already liked James Bond because I had seen the previous two movies. For some weird metaphysical reason, Richard, Goldfinger passed my brother and I by. And here's the other weird irony is that the rest of the decade, they used to re-release the Bond films as double features. And my brother and I must have seen, you know, From Russia with Love and Thunderball and Dr. No and From Russia, you know, these these double features in the movie theater. We must have seen that 20, 30 times in those years following Thunderball. But I don't ever remember a double feature with Goldfinger in it. It was always the other three films. And then You Only Live Twice, obviously, when that came out in 67, for the rest of the 60s, You Only Live Twice was thrown into the mix. Now, I've seen posters online from back in the day that show Goldfinger was a double feature, but I gotta tell you, I never saw it as a double feature with the other Connery Bond films. When was the first so, time you saw it then? So, it was in the fall of 1972. Wow. That ABC TV bought the rights for the first time, a Bond film was shown on American television. They were not shown, you know, like nowadays, a movie comes out in the movie theater and a year later right. it's on television. It took forever back then, I remember. Well, because they had a lucrative um, replay market in the theaters with these double features. Mm. And I think the idea was, we'll get people to keep coming to pay for Bond movies because if we show it on television, we're going to lose all that traffic. I, I'm assuming that was the reason. But for whatever reason, maybe because the 70s, it was a new decade. You know, Con oh, maybe this is why. In 71, Connery does his last Bond film. Nobody knew he would come back 12 years later and do Never Say Never Again. But in 71, he decided Diamonds Forever was going to be it. So it's interesting that Goldfinger is shown on television a year after Diamonds Are Forever as if to keep the Connery thing alive. Right. And they made a big deal. I remember it was the subject of one of those 
you know, in TV Guide, they would have those half-page spotlights on whatever was on that evening of special note. And I remember they made a big deal out of Goldfinger being on television for the first time. In other words, think about it. They didn't show Dr. No first. They decided out of all the films Connery had made that they were going to show on TV for the first time on ABC was Goldfinger. And that tells you why Goldfinger to this day is usually thought of as the best, the best, the greatest, whatever Bond film. But the, the thing I want to say, because I didn't see it till I was 14 years old on television, while I like Goldfinger and maybe I, quote, love certain things about it, um, I don't have that same emotional connection that I have to the other Connery Bonds that I saw in the day. Interesting, interesting. And so, Even though it's considered the yeah. best film. But, you know, my feeling about the best Bond film is that the reason why I did this uh, webinar series of the first four films is that I don't choose among the first four films which is better because I find each of them are totally unique while they share certain things, of course, um, and what they share is what makes them unique. They share the same creative team. Starting with You Only Live Twice, they disrupt the original creative team. So my feeling is even Dr. No, though it was the first film with the smallest budget, only $1 million, which I guess in 1962 dollars was like $10 million, but either way, you know, it's still a unique film. It's the first, you know, it sets the stage. Dr. No is a unique villain. Each of the films of those first four has something the others don't. From Rush With Love, closest to the book than the other three films. Mm -hmm. And that's what Bond aficionados love about From Rush With Love. Thunderball, totally unique. If you know, I'm going to talk about that next month with you and then my webinar. But Thunderball obviously is, is you know, unique. Um, and they all have flaws that we kind of jokingly talk about here and there. Bad rear projection scenes, um, plot, you know, discontinuity, mishaps and things like that. But they are all they all share that same creative team. And that's what makes them. I don't want to get biblical here, but it's like the, you know, the four books of the New Testament. They're all different, but they all share right. the same unique characters, obviously, <clears throat> in the same way. <clears throat> and I can make a great case, and I will in my Thunderball webinar, when I talk about why I'm not including You Only Live Twice in that canon. And I have concrete reasons, but they begin with the fact that it's not the same director. It's not, you know, the, the same Bond crew, right. not the same screenwriter. I mean, the two greatest elements, the director and the screenwriter, are not the same as the first four. Well, Whereas the first four films, same screenwriter, three out of four films are the same director, except for Goldfinger, which we'll talk about. Right. I was just going to say, Guy Hamilton takes over as, yes. from Terrence Young as director. Now, yes. is, is, it, is his direction... 
uh, noticeably different? Or was the Bible sort of, you mentioned the Bible, but, you know, the, the show presumably had kind of a Bible at this point. You know, there are certain things. Well, it had, it had two films before him. Yeah. So can you notice that yeah, it's so, the, the direction, the direct direction difference? So th- right. So this gets into, again, what the Bond aficionados, you know, they praise Hamilton. Oh, because Goldfinger is the best film, they give a lot of kudos to um, Hamilton. Whereas now, maybe this is because, again, I have an emotional distance from the film. As I've studied these films intently, not only have I watched every Bond film hundreds of times at this point, but, you know, when I really look at Goldfinger and I look at the creative crew that he had, he stepped into a Terrence Young manufactured Bond cinematic concept. Terrence Young is as, and he's the director of the first two films, and then he came back for Thunderball. In his own words, he said he did the first, he did the best, which he thought was from Rush With Love, and he did the biggest, which was Thunderball. But Terrence Young is as important to the Connery Bond cinematic persona as Ian Fleming, his literary creator. And I talk about these things in in my first two webinars, but the thing is my somewhat distanced clinical study of Goldfinger is that if you took an average Bond fan or, or somebody that had never seen the Bond films and they didn't know who directed them, you would think Goldfinger looks and feels to me no different than the other three Terrence Young directed films. And I attribute that to the fact that he inherited the exact same creative crew, same screenwriter, same director of photography, same production designer, the great Ken Adam, the same editor, the great Peter Hunt. These are the elements that make the Bond films, those early Connery Bond films, what they are. Again, I'm leaving You Only Live Twice out of it. Right, right. Also had, uh, you know, I read that it had the the budget combined, the two first films combined. Course, so does that show up on the screen in your mind, the, the, the extra money? Well, absolutely. The, gold, the Fort Knox interior alone. Most people think that really is what Fort Knox looks like. They didn't have access. Nobody is shown access to the inside of Fort Knox. So Ken Adam, the production designer, that's his conception. And again, I don't focus on the things that I love, whether it's Twilight Zone, comic book history, the music of Bruce Springsteen. I'm not interested in the minutia of dollars spent. A lot of people are concerned about money, obviously, with these things. I'm more concerned about the creativity and what really makes these movies tick. But I just want to finish my point about Hamilton, is that I believe that Hamilton inherited a, a, a beautifully purring engine of like a Rolls Royce. And all he had to do was shepherd the movie through. I don't believe Goldfinger has a different feel or a different directorial stamp. I think Guy Hamilton was a great, was a competent, in other words, I believe any competent movie director in 1964 
if they inherited Sean Connery and the creative crew that Terrence Young used for the first two films and that he brought back for the fifth for the fourth film, Thunderball, Hamilton had the same crew. Now, yes, you had to be a competent enough director, but the point I'm trying to make is I don't feel like Goldfinger has a different feel. Right. I, I don't I think he inherited a template that he was a competent enough director. Listen, good luck trying to name Guy Hamilton's cinematic resume before Goldfinger. Good luck. It's not like he was some great director like David Lean or I'm trying to think early 60s directors. You know, Alfred Hitchcock even, you know, from Rush with Love feels like a Hitchcock film. But you know what I mean? It's like, think of the great directors in the early 60s who were in Hollywood or in Britain at the time. Right. And, he he was know, serviceable. He was serviceable. He was, But he was a traffic manager in the sense that he inherited a great creative team. Right. That he was able to maintain the Terrence Young feeling that the first two films established. Um, the other thing, maybe this is why, for some people, this Goldfinger is, you know, the Bond film. It's because it seems like the, a lot of the elements kind of really come together in this third film. You've got the the gadgets and the the technology, and you got you know, again some exactly. fabulous Bond girls, and it's all it all comes together. Well, to those who believe it's it's the apogee of the Bond films, like three times a charm. Yeah, I you know, you could and listen, people have made the very first book about the Bond films that came out in 1972 called James Bond in the Cinema by John Brosnan. Um, it, he put the book out right after Diamonds Are Forever came out. And um, he was the one, it was the first book. He starts right off in his Goldfinger chapter where he basically makes the case. He goes, Goldfinger is my favorite Bond film. I think it's the best of the three of the of the, you know, the Connery Bonds. I think it's the one that, you know, where, like you said, all the elements came together. It was a plot that was both outlandish and both realistic. It it had the painted gold woman that was very unique at the time. The idea that she was nude. This is 1964, you know before the sexual revolution really hits big. So you had that aspect. You had um, you had the car for the first time. You know how we all love the car. Oh, Everybody the Aston loved, Martin. It's like the Batmobile, you know? Right. It was the car. Now, I'm not a car guy, you know? That's the other thing. It's like cars don't excite me. I, As a Batman fan, I don't even like the Batmobile. My Batman does not tuck his cape under his ass and get into a car <laughs> and take a drive. My Batman swings from the rooftops by his silken cord like the acrobat he's supposed to be. But you know how people love that Batmobile? Right. So you had the car for the first time. Right. And the merchandising um, of it too. With, uh, it well, was, and um, then, okay. And then you get, remember, from Rush to Love, there's nothing to merchandise. No. Yeah. The briefcase. Hey, I had the briefcase. They, now, I don't know whether they marketed that during From Russia Love or they put that out post Goldfinger. But, you know, yeah, what's there to merchandise from the first two films? Next to nothing. Hmm. But starting with Goldfinger, they gave them merchandise. Not only the car, but all the gadgets in the car. Um, and then you had the villains. You had Oddjob, who was unique. The fact that he was Asian. The fact that he didn't speak. The bowler hat. Um, 
none of the other villains had had, well, no, I can't say they didn't have henchmen, but you know, from, from Rush With Love, Rosa Klebb and Ronald Grant are like equal, even though Rosa Klebb was kind of her boss, his boss. But, and, you know, Dr. No didn't have a henchman. So Goldfinger is the first one, the guy with the brute. And every movie since then has kind of always had the bad guy with his brute that Bond has to overcome somehow. Right, right. And some great locations, too. You know, though I wasn't a big fan of Kentucky, no offense to Kentuckians, but I like, the reason why I love Goldfinger more, again, I saw it in the movie theater, so I have the emotional connection. I like Bond in an exotic setting. So you meant Thunderball, didn't you? A Thunderball, I'm sorry. Right. I like Bond in, a, in an exotic setting. The other three films have more exotic locations than coming to it. Now, Fort Knox, the interior was right. exotic. Switzerland. But everything else about, yeah, well, there were other locations. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, um, you know, that's one of the things about the Bond film. I don't like Bond in America. Like, I didn't like Diamonds Forever taking place in Las Vegas. That wasn't exotic enough for me. Sorry. Interesting. You Interesting. Know? And uh, you, uh, some of the other promotional things. You had uh, the, the um, Shirley Eaton on the cover of Life with that gold-painted... Well, time out a second. One of the biggest things was the song. Right. It was Even though From Rush With Love had a theme song, it wasn't a big hit. Dr. No didn't have a theme song or any real instrumental music. But Goldfinger has the greatest, and that I will give it, every Bond film since, I don't care what it is, has had to deal with the prominence and the echo of Goldfinger. I think the only movie, the only score other than Paul McCartney's um, 1973 Live and Let Die, only Adele's Skyfall song, I think even touched or came near Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Mm, right. But I think the song, as well as the film, is also what propelled it into the prominence that Goldfinger has, is that it is, it's like the Batman TV show theme. It's like the Twilight Zone music. Goldfinger is the other great theme of the 60s. The minute you go, Goldfinger, I mean... It's so iconic. It's like it's like a it's a monumental song. Right. And Shirley Bassey's delivery and and like I said, every theme song since has been measured against it and no other film score. Like I said, McCartney's, you know, Live and Let Die was a great song on its own. It didn't even need to be a Bond song, but there's nothing like Goldfinger. Right, By right. Shirley Bassey, it's like the born to run of, of Bond songs. Sure, you know? it cracked the Billboard 200. It was huge. Well, you know, I'm sure it's sold and whatever, and yeah, but I'm just saying the song was such a big part of the movie's success in its multimedia forms. You know, it had that incredible theme song that became the sin qua non of Bond theme songs. That's it. So let's talk a little bit about the plot, which is, it's what's interesting to me is it kind of takes us out of that, that, that Cold War kind of feel because it's not about, you know, the Russians. It's about, it's about... You know, supposedly Fleming wrote the book. It was, I think, his fifth Bond novel, 1959 or something, or sixth Bond novel, I think. Came out in 1959. 
And it came as a result of a conversation that Fleming had with a gold expert in London, you know, probably during, you know, imagine a scene out of a Bond film, you know, probably at some groovy dinner or mm -hmm. social occasion with the finest of everything. And, you know, and he meets a gold guy and Fleming was fascinated by the world of gold that he got out of this one chance social meeting. And out of that came Goldfinger. Right. So the villain. So so it wasn't meaning based on your point. Yeah. It, yeah. It had nothing to do with the with Smirsh and the Cold War and you know Spectre. None of the other trappings. It was like a self-contained Bond story that had yeah. And maybe that's another reason why it's held in such high esteem because maybe it doesn't have the political baggage, quote unquote. But that's what also makes the other films fascinating as well. So either story, I guess, worked. A non-Cold War story and just a straight supervillain story. All right, so let's just uh, drill down a little bit on the on the plot. So uh, it starts out Bond is in Miami, right? He's trying to break up some kind of a drug ring and then, then he's... No, that's not Miami, that's South America. Ah, but he ends up in Miami. I'm yeah. But then, yeah, yeah, but then the film proper... That's the opening teaser sequence or pre-credit sequence, as it's called, which again, Bond fans hold in high esteem as the single best pre-credit sequence. And I believe, again, the first four films have three of the best pre-credit sequences, and that would be from Rush With Love, which was the first. Dr. No didn't really have one. Um, from Rush With Love was the first, Goldfinger was the second, and then Thunderball when he gets on the jetpack. Right. Um, none of the other pre-credit sequences, I think, since have measured up to those three. But, and we'll come back to this, so remind me when we talk about the final scene, the fight scene with Oddjob, how the movie brings full circle what happens in that opening pre-credit sequence right so you're right you're right he was he was in central america i think and he's breaking up his drug laboratory in the right he, he, he he bombs a refinery that had the drugs in it and then he's at a cafe and uh he's meeting his contact there and tells him there's a plane for you waiting in miami uh, to take you to miami and he goes well i've got a little business i must take care of and he meets the dancing girl that of course was a a setup and um, and that's the other interesting thing about it. The guy that plays the bad guy in the opening credit sequence that comes at him with a club to kill him, hiding behind the chest of drawers right. in the uh, dancing girl's apartment. That actor's name is Alf Joint, believe it or not. <laughs> that is the same guy who plays, believe it or not, the Bond character in that opening pre-credit sequence when he comes up out of the water with the camouflage duck on his head. Right. That's Alf Join, and then they cut to Connery. And then when the guy jumps down from the wall and knocks out the security guard and then runs across the field to the refinery, yes. that's not Connery, that's Alf Join. His stunt, his stunt double, his stunt He's double. A, right. And then he plays on screen the bad guy coming to kill him in the uh, dancing girl's apartment. Ah. A lot of people don't know that. They think that's Connery 
jumping off the wall and knocking out the guy, the guard, and then running across the field. And when you look closely, and I show this in my webinar, when you look closely and I freeze the frame and I show it to my audience, you can see the grayish hair of Alf Joint in one quick image if you look closely. Ah, oh, that's great. That's great. That's a little Easter egg there for people. Yes. So, yes. Uh, so then he ends up in Miami, and he's his CIA. Right. His CIA contact tells him basically keep an eye on Orc Goldfinger, this bullion dealer. Right. And um, the interesting scene where he catches him. He ke- he catches Goldfinger cheating in a, in a game of high stakes gin rummy. Right. Talk to me a little bit about that scene. Well, this is another. Remember, I said every film has its flaws. Yes. I find the fact that when they go to Miami, other than that great opening aerial shot of you know the hotels along you know Miracle Mile there, when they actually cut to the action at the poolside, it's an obvious set at Pinewood Studios in London, and here is this beautiful supposed to be a beautiful sunny you know, summer day or whatever in Miami. And, you know, all of a sudden you you get this cinematic feeling that doesn't feel live. It doesn't feel like they're actually there. And I find that to be very jarring. Bad rear projection when they have Goldfinger sitting down. You know, they're showing footage of Miami being shot. And I just find that a little cheap looking. And it's always very jarring because again, that opening teaser sequence, you know, was incredible. And it's just, to me, a little jarring that um, Miami was not shot live. They, they chose to shoot the Miami scenes at Pinewood. But needless to say, the star of that opening sequence is Shirley Eaton, the girl that's cheating for Goldfinger up in the hotel room in her beautiful black bikini that Bond ends up, you know, invading, pun intended. And <laughs> right. Actually, I didn't intend that pun, but once I said it, I realized, yes. <laughs> you regretted it. <laughs> but, you know, and... Uh, Jill and Masterson, she, Jill Masterson. Jill Masterson, Shirley Eaton, the actress. And that's, see, that's the other reason for Goldfinger's prominence. I said this earlier on, but the idea of the painted gold naked body was a bit salacious, a bit lascivious for 1964, keep in mind. But it gave the Bond film a media icon because everybody wants a beautiful woman on their magazine cover, especially a beautiful woman painted gold. That was such a unique, never before done kind of thing. Um, And she was on the cover of Life magazine. It was the first time a Bond film made it to that level of publicity and promotion so you know not only did you have the car but you had the great song and you had the beautiful woman unlike from Russia Love and Dr. No which didn't really have bombshells to feature on their magazine covers yeah you had Ursula Andress but it was the first Bond film there wasn't a big deal made about her right but but when they had that gold image I show uh, a black and white photo in my webinar of the scene when they decided to let the press use her gold painted figure as a publicity shoot laid out on the bed in that famous scene where and this incredible shot of Connery 
sitting on the bed, touching her dead body. And you see this phalanx, phalanx yeah. of photographers. You like that alliteration, phalanx of photographers? <laughs> I mean, incredible that they're all, and it's a little bit, you know, you talk about the male gaze, as they say today. Mm -hmm. The male gaze of all these photo male photographers at Shirley Eaton laid out. And obviously she wasn't naked. They had a little, you know, scanty gold bikini. But you know what I mean? It's a it's a very jarring picture when you see it. This very intimate moment in the film, but in reality, they let the entire press in on set to to use that, and they milked it, and they and they got rewarded for it. I mean, Shirley Eaton painted as as in she's seen in Goldfinger was ubiquitous. She was everywhere. More of my conversation with Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, good, good, a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. This is gold, Mr. Bond. All my life I've been in love with its color, its brilliance, its divine heaviness. I welcome any enterprise that will increase my stock, which is considerable. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die.
Arlen Schumer is here for part three of our four-part series on the first four films of the Sean Connery James Bond canon. Auric Goldfinger, which is kind of an interesting name because Auric, I guess, is basically means gold. So his name is in Gold, Latin. gold, go, yeah, Gold, Latin. Gold, Goldfinger. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, Ian Fleming, a little bit on the nose. I mean, Goldfinger wasn't enough. It's like he could have been Jimmy Goldfinger. You know? Right, right. So <laughs> the uh, the actor Gert is it Frobe? Frobe, Gert Frobe. I think you pronounce actually Froba German. Yeah. Those umlauts always throw me off, Arlen. Anyway, right, right. so so t- tell me a little bit about Gert Froba. Well, the, the the crucial trivia about Goldfinger, and they did this in the other films as well with Ursula Andress. They didn't feel like his English was good enough to use in the film, so they ended up dubbing his entire vocal soundtrack by an English actor uh, named Michael, man, I don't have this in my notes, but I'm gonna be showing a little film that they made about this actor, Michael something or other, um, who ended up being the voice of Goldfinger. You know, you you expect me to talk, Goldfinger? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Okay, that's my- That's the classic line, one of the classic lines. But that is not Gert Froba. That And I think as I read the behind the scenes, they originally thought they were going to use his voice. But I think once they saw the rushes from the first scenes with him and the way he spoke English, they were like they thought the movie was going to collapse. And I think they desperately found this other actor that could do his voice. But it wasn't planned out in a head like it happened as an onset decision by Saltzman and Broccoli like oh my god this is going to be a disaster if we use his voice like we've got to do something about that and like I said they did that with Ursula Andress that is not her speaking voice in the film she is dubbed um, and I think uh, let's see and from Rush with Love yeah I think those are all natural voices um, but yeah so that is the trivia about Frova and you know he was in a few other films like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and yes. things but again I'm not an expert in the minute you know filmography of every one of these actors but when you think about Gert Froba it's not like he was in a bunch of great films I mean Goldfinger is his immortal hat in the ring of you know cinematic villains right and uh odd job the american japanese i guess he was a professional wrestler harold, harold uh, cicada right. have any interesting uh, trivia about harold uh well you know in my webinar he was like an instant media star um there you know they made commercials with him right after goldfinger you know was such a hit there's a high karate uh Aftershave, right, right. Aftershave, and and um, he was like a gentle giant in a way, uh, and I think he had great appeal. Um, you know, he was like kind of the villain you love to hate kind of thing. Nobody hated Oddjob. Um, everybody kind of liked him, even though he was this deadly villain at the end, um, you know, in that final fight scene. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's Harold Takata. Like a really unique, and again, he will always be the ultimate henchman. Every henchman is measured against against Oddjob. 
you know, right. even the name. I mean, that's classic, you know, Ian Fleming, odd job, because that's what you gave assistants. You gave them odd jobs. So, <laughs> you know, odd job, you know, great, great little pun on that. But but I think that's the great thing about Harold Sakat is that while he also was in no other film you can probably think of, I can't think of anything, you know, he was in. But, you know, he'll always be odd job and he will always be the iconic henchman that's it you know and that's another feather in the cap of goldfinger that its fans who maintain it's the number one bond film can point to is saying what other film has an odd job you know right right so let's just talk again going back to the plot this the the scheme here is that uh goldfinger wants to contaminate the gold supply at right. uh, Fort Knox with uh, radiation, right? So it's right. it's useless, and then his gold bullion will be, you know... Which, of course, doesn't get revealed until, you know, Bond is having a mint julep with him in his Kentucky farm, because everybody assumes, oh, you know, you're going to take the gold. It's going to be a typical bank heist. You know, you're going to take the gold out of Fort Knox. But, you know, obviously, you know, as Bond sits there and says, well... Mr. Goldfinger, that would take, you know, 200 men and 20 years to stop 200, you know. But that was the conventional way of thinking. But Goldfinger was like all these mad geniuses, you know. They, uh, they're, he was an out-of-the-box, or should I say out-of-the-knox <laughs> when he, uh, you like the way I coined that just now? Um, you know, the idea of using, again, the atomic bomb was hanging over everybody's head in the late 50s and early and mid 60s the height of the cold war but the idea of using the atomic bomb so to speak to contaminate the gold that was the genius part of the plan right that would that would increase the value of his cold you know tenfold or whatever and so that was what was ingenious about it and that's why he needed all the different elements he needed the nerve gas from one gangster and he needed you know, the atomic bomb from the Chinese, and he needed, you know, all those different pieces. And then, of course, he killed everybody once he had everything. Right, and and he there's that scene where he's made this scale model yes. uh, of Fort Knox, and he's got all the mobsters in, in the room. Right, the and, rumpus room, as they called it. Right, and it, I always thought this was kind of strange, where he goes to the trouble of explaining exactly how this thing is going to work, and then he, you know, right. he has all the uh, the mafiosa executed. It's like, well, why did you go to the trouble of telling them? But again, them? you know, that started with you know Doctor No. I mean, that that's one of the stations of the Bond Cross is the villain explaining, you know, his scheme right before he wants to kill the good guy, you know, or in this case, kill the bad guys. But obviously, it's a conventional tool to tell the audience what right. the plot is. Right. That's really the thing. But yeah, it's the classic ego of the criminal that I'm going to tell you every detail of my plan because I'm going to kill you. I can reveal everything to you because you, you don't know this, but you're going to die. So it allows him, it's like, what good is a great plot so to speak if you can't tell anybody about it so i think it's the ego of the villain that wants to talk about it you know what good is a great crime if nobody knows about it right right 
Yeah, it's like an artist so, wanting to sign so, his I mean, name. Here we are psychoanalyzing Goldfinger, but listen, when directors and writers get together, this is what they talk about is what is our character's motivation in the scene? Why is Goldfinger telling everybody? Well, practically, we have to tell the audience. So how do we couch it within the movie's plot that it makes sense? Well, it's the ego of the villain telling his, um, you know, compatriots that he's going to murder, which we, the audience, did not know he was going to do. Right. It came as a surprise. So, you know, that was, uh, that's the function of that scene. All right. We have to talk about uh, Pussy Galore, one of the great names in cinematic history. <laughs> a little over the top, perhaps. But, well, uh, <laughs> Honor Blackman, great English actress. She was in a secret agent British television called The Avengers mm -hmm. that a lot of Americans associate with the Diana Rigg version. Yes. Came to America in 1965 when she already, Honor Blackman, when she did Goldfinger, she gave up the role. And that's when Diana Rigg, as Emma Peel, took it over. But the fascinating thing about Pussy Galore is how in 1964, especially in America, you know, Europe was much more open to sexuality right. even back then. How did they let Pussy Galore through? The name, the name exactly. Pussy, yeah. I mean, Pussy Galore, are you kidding me? Even Bond <laughs> in the movie, when he wakes up in the airplane and we meet Honor Blackman for the first time, and he goes, who are you? And she goes, I'm Pussy Galore. And even Bond says, when he hears that name, like, I must be dreaming. That's how I landed. <laughs> but it turns out, very practical reason. Yes, the Bond... Uh, creators, the producers were concerned about um, the name, but the, and I think this was set up by the Bond publicity people, but they were able to get Honor Blackman to go to a film opening, I think in the spring of 64 when they were filming the movie. She went to an opening in England, in London, of a, of a, of a film uh, what was the movie? It was called, um, you know, I don't have the name of the film. It was a lighthearted, like Doris Day type movie. It wasn't a heavy film. And um, Prince Philip was there. And the press, they, they planted the name, The Prince and the Pussy. Ah. The alliteration of the two and it was printed in the Daily Express, the big paper in, in London at the time. And because of that, it was like once the, the Daily Express printed it in the paper, the prince and the pussy, it was declared okay. So that name didn't come from the Fleming novel then? No, no, I think it was. She was already named Pussy Galore. But the, the way they got it past the American Oh, I see, right. Is that by having this setup at this London movie opening where Prince Philip and his entourage come and meet the Bond entourage, they planted the story with the catchy title, The Prince and the Pussy. Or The Pussy and the, yeah, The Prince and the Pussy. Right, right. And by printing it as a newspaper headline, they were able to get it past the editors, not the editors, the censors in America as like, okay, look, it was printed in the newspaper. So it's fine. I still can't believe they, even with that, they got it through, but they got it through. 
So uh, I just one other thing that's uh, just struck me, and that you mentioned, uh, or we were talking about London just briefly, because you know he has to go, he has to go to London, and uh, he meets up with with uh, Q and so forth with the gadgets. But while he's in London, I think he makes reference to the Beatles. Um, it's kind of a put no, down. No, it wasn't in London. It was in Miami in oh. the hotel room right before he gets karate chopped by Oddjob, who then kills the girl and paints her gold. Okay, but the reference... Right, the- before, right before, he's going to the kitchen. Remember, it starts out, you know, they're canoodling in bed, and he goes, uh, oh, the champagne has lost its chill. And she's like, what's wrong with it? It's fine. And, he, and as he's leaving the bed to go to the kitchen, he puts on his bathroom, he says something like, oh, silly girl, you know, drinking Dom Perignon 54 at anything less than it's, you know, 98 degree, you know, Fahrenheit temperature is like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Right. <laughs> and I'll never forget, like, okay, I didn't see it till 1972, but I grew up with the Beatles. Sure. To this day, we love Sean Connery. We love him as Bond, but I guarantee you, yeah, every every fan of the Beatles who also loves Bond, we hate sure. when Connery outs himself. <laughs> I say Connery when Bond outs himself as you know one of the establishment that was putting down the Beatles. You right. got to remember. Guys like um, Steve Allen, Frank Sinatra, that whole age demographic of American media and entertainment, they all badmouthed the Beatles, just like they did to Elvis Presley. Right. Remember Steve Allen making Elvis Presley sing Hound Dog to a real dog? Yeah, right, right. That demeaning thing. They all made fun. Guys like Sinatra, who I don't like. Uh, guys like Sinatra, you know, they thought rock and roll was some fad that was going to disappear. This crappy music by musicians who can't play and can't sing. You know, I hate them all. I hate, I'm a rock and roller, man. I grew up with the Beatles, with 60s rock and roll, the radio, Motown, all that stuff. And I absolutely, to this day, I can't stand people like Steve Allen. All those that generation that put down rock and roll. Right, the squares. You know, so, squares, the establishment. And for our hero, Bob. Yeah, why would they do even that? Though he, even though he was their age, so to speak, for him, well, that's the script. That was Richard Maybaum. And you got to remember, they put this movie together right when Beatlemania hit. Yeah, they just washed ashore. Even though, even though well, that was in America. Remember, these guys are British. Yep. The Beatles hit it big in Britain in 1963. Mm-hmm. That's how come they were on the Ed Sullivan show in February of 64, because Sullivan was at an airport in London in the fall of 64 when the Beatles were just coming back from some tour and he couldn't believe the mob scene at the airport. Right. And he said, what is this? And they said, oh, that's this you know music group called the Beatles. Well, we got to have them on. And that's how the Beatles came to America. But the establishment, bad man, and the, and the upper crust British society, I'm sure they also thought the Beatles were nonsense, even though they were selling out, you know. But I mean, you know what I mean? So, so you know, for, for the Bond character to align itself with the anti-Beatle crowd 
is was really tough to tape because we Bond was our idol. Right. He was the male role model. You know, women want to be with him, men want to be like him, you know, all that stuff. And to this day, every time I see Goldfinger, <laughs> I cringe at when he makes that comment. Yeah, I thought you might have a reaction to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and I'll never forgive them. I mean, you know, it's like it's it's there forever. And look at what the Beatles became. Imagine 500 years from now, you're studying film of the 20th century. Right, right. And you're going to you're going to make note of that that the Bond producers were out of touch. They took the side of the establishment, badmouthed the Beatles, and look how the Beatles proved everybody wrong. Right, right. That's everybody. They thought their lyrics were nonsense. They thought they couldn't play. They thought the, the music sucked. They were all proven wrong. You know, by 1969, guys like Sinatra were doing TV specials where they were singing Beatles songs. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So but I'll never, I'll, you you'll, know, you'll, I'll never, I'll never forgive them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So let's go back to the um, the plot because we're reaching the, you know, uh, oh, we mentioned Pussy Galore. She goes to that scene where she's flying over with that kind of that crop duster thing, and she's, I guess, she's spreading uh, nerve gas or something over well, we Fort think, Knox. We think, but you skipped over the big scene where Bond makes her as we later find out, makes her change her mind by appealing to her maternal instincts. Remember that scene in the barn? Uh, remind you me. You skipped over a major scene. Oh, okay. She she is Goldfinger's female henchwoman. Right, right. She's a kept woman. You know, she's there for the money, supposedly. And, uh, you know, she's going to release this nerve gas. Now, I don't think she knew it was de- it was deadly, um, she just thought it was probably going to knock them out. But Bond meets her in the barn, in the hayloft. They go for a roll in the hay. Right. And that's where Bond tries to convince her, like, you know, you realize he's mad. He's going to kill thousands of people. You can't do this. And she was going to, like, stick to it. And then he goes, you know, what can I do to change your mind as he pulls her close to him? And that's when she insinuates that she's a lesbian, which, again, in 1964, Mm. you know, people think lesbians were invented in 1970. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like it's like that was a taboo subject, but it was, you know, hinted at. I think in the book, Fleming comes right out and says, you know, lesbian, I I think I'm not sure because I never read the books. But um, but it was insinuated when she goes, you know, Try all you want, Bond. You know, I'm immune. Mm-hmm. Well, who can be immune to Sean Connery in 1964? And if you remember the scene, they literally go for roll in the hay. They wrestle. They trade judo moves. But then Connery, Bond, gets right literally on top of her and presses down. At first, she resists. You know, it's the classic cliche of no. Stop. No, stop. Or no, what is it? Don't yeah. stop. Right. Don't. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't stop. And that's kind of what happened. Now, you know, modern critics, especially women, they think the early Bond films, they use the expression, you know, it's a little too rapey. Mm-hmm. You know, Bond's a sexist, then he forces himself on women. And 
yeah, he did force himself on Pussy Galore, but for a greater cause. He's exactly. trying to save hundreds of thousands of lives, not to mention the gold bullion of the United States, which you know the government cares more about than all the people that would die from the nerve gas. And he's, every, oh, he's right. Yeah, well, you know, that was the mission. You know, sometimes he's got to bed down the villain like he does in Goldfinger. Right. I, I in Thunderball, if you remember in Thunderball, she goes, oh, you know, the great James Bond, you know, you know you loved it. And he goes, oh, are you kidding? I only did what I did for queen and country. <laughs> you know, so even when Bond is having sex with the villain, it's all part of the job, baby. That's it. That's it's it. The ultimate, he gets the job done. And if the job means you've got to seduce, you know, at one point M in For Russia Love in the beginning, where the whole plot hinges on he's got to bed down this Russian woman that has the lector. And uh, she will only give the lector to Bond if basically they get to have sex. She's a big fan of Bond's. And Bond looks at the photograph and he says to M, well, what if when I meet her, you know, I don't measure up? Because she only knows him from a photograph. And what does M say to him? Well, just see that you do. <laughs> yeah. So in other words, sometimes having sex was part of the job. That's I think in World War II, there were women uh, on the Allied side that would seduce Germans into the forest or into the back of the bar and murder them. Right, right. So all's fair in love and war. There you go. All right, so coming to the near the end of the film, you've got Odd Job and uh, Bond and one of Goldfinger's henchmen. I can't remember the character. Uh, they're in the yeah, vault. The atomic scientist guy. Right, right. They're in the they're in the vault, and the the atomic scientist guy actually, I guess, because they're trapped in there, he decides he's going to try and defuse the bomb. Right. Right. Odd Job. Faithful to the end, Odd right. Job said, "No, you don't." Right, throws Although him to he his death. Talk, but he basically throws him over the railing to his death because uh, he's going to be faithful to Goldfinger to the end and sacrifice himself to complete the mission. That's how loyal Odd Job was. Right. So then Bond frees himself, and he's trying to defuse the bomb, and then we get this fight scene with well, Odd Job is basically kicking the crap out of Bond for the first part, and then and then it comes around to. Okay, so this is where I find the most fascinating aspect of Goldfinger that really boggles my mind. So, remember the opening pre-credit sequence? Right, blowing up the drug lab. Okay, but after that, when he's in the dancer's apartment, okay, and he has the fight with the stuntman, do you remember how he kills him? Does he electrocute him? Yes. In the bathtub. Mm, right, right. He falls in the bathtub and he's reaching for his gun and Bond sees an electric fan, throws it in the water. Right. And electrocutes him. And then he does the classic double entendre where he goes, shocking. <laughs> Quite shocking. And that's how that opening sequence ends. Bond experts, aficionados, not only hail that as the best pre-credit sequence, which, again, it's in the running, I happen to like from Russia Loves better, but 
one of the things they love about the Goldfinger pre-credit sequence is that they feel it's self-contained as a little adventure, right. a little mini escapade. They feel it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Okay. And I'm telling you Bond experts, because I've talked to a few of them, when I shine them on to this very, to me, obvious fact. How does he kill Oddjob at the end of the film? Electrocu electrocutes him. How? Ah. Uh, okay, so. Can't remember. Okay. So Oddjob had his steel-rimmed bowler hat. Right. That was the big weapon that he used to decapitate one of the Bond girls, Tilly Masterson, Jill Masterson's sister. And uh, he uses it on Bond in Fort Knox. He throws it at Bond, but he misses Bond, and it lodges into um, the metal wall. Because remember, it was steel tip. Right. But the first time he threw it, when it missed Bond, it cut... Uh, in half an electrical wire leaving it exposed on the ground. So Bond returns the throw, but he misses Oddjob. Oddjob takes the bowler hat, throws it again at Bond, misses it, and lodges in the wall. And the electrical wire is sitting there. Oddjob goes to take his hat off of the wall, and Bond looks at the electrical wire sees Oddjob about to touch the metal-rimmed hat, throws himself across the floor, grabs the exposed electrical wire, touches it to the wall, which was steel, and it electrocutes Oddjob because he's holding on to the steel-rimmed bowler hat. Remember that? Right. And he gets right. electrocuted. Right, so okay. it's kind of a throwback to the, 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 pre the sequel, or the pre-sequence. Okay, okay. To me, it was always obvious that in that moment, in the pre-credit sequence, Bond, classic Bond, they're trained to think quick. The guy's in the bathtub reaching for the gun and the holster hanging there. And Bond knows if he doesn't do something right now, he's going to get shot dead. And in a split second, he sees the fan and does it. Flash forward to Fort Knox interior. He's standing there. Odd job is a, and he's just gotten the shit kicked out of him. Odd job is about to get the bowler hat and come in for the kill, and the same thing happens. in In a split second, he sees the exposed electrical wire. Bond is smart. It's like MacGyver. He puts two and two together in a split second, and electrocutes him. It is a total coming full circle. Right. From, but if I told you, Bond experts have never made that connection. Really? I bet you there are Bond experts listening into this podcast that are going right now, holy crap. I never realized that. I'm only telling you that because I've talked to a couple of Bond experts and they couldn't believe what I was telling them. They were like, oh my God, I never connected that. Oh my God, I never saw that. Now, Interesting. I'm just yeah. The and, way I'm describing it, it seems obvious now. Right, right. But I'm telling you, there are Bond... The guy that wrote the James Bond Encyclopedia, I won't name his name, you can find it easily, but he wrote the Encyclopedia of Bond, A to Z. 
every factoid you can think of. And he missed it. He missed it. Wow. There you go. All right. So what what else do we need to talk An about? An Arlen Schumer exclusive. <laughs> right here. So I guess we, we talk about the ending when uh, Bond is being flown to the White House. Goldfinger right. uh, hijacks the plane. Um, what happens? He gets sucked sucked out the window somehow. Well, because Bond warns him, you know, if you shoot your gun, you know, it will depressure the cabin. Right. And, of course, he ends up struggling Goldfinger. Goldfinger shoots the gun. Out goes the window. And everything starts getting sucked out. Now, we have seen in movies and television how many scenes of airplanes when the doors of the window fly open, everything gets sucked out. But... I think, and I'm gonna, you know, I feel confident in what I'm saying here. I think that's the first time that was ever filmed and done in movie history. Hmm. I I don't think you could find a movie in which a fight scene or something takes place inside an airplane where a window or door gets knocked out and everything gets sucked out. I think Goldfinger is the first time that concept is visualized. Oh, that's and interesting. That's what, and that's what also make, makes it memorable. Right. Is right. that nobody had ever done that. And to this day, they're still doing it because it's, it's exciting. Right, right. When everybody gets sucked out into, you know, the void outside the airplane. I mean, they're still doing it in movies. Um, and it starts again with Goldfinger. Interesting, interesting. And then, of course, in classic Bond style, uh, the plane's out of control, so he and Pussy Galore parachute to safety. And uh, towards the end of the film, as they're uh, they're looking for him, uh, they're flying overhead with a, a helicopter, and, and Bond takes the parachute and throws it over them so they can't be discovered. Now is no time to be rescued. Right. <laughs> and, you is- know, it's funny. Um, John Brosnan, the guy that wrote the first Bond book, he always made it a point to say... You know, only in Dr. No and Goldfinger is Bond allowed. Actually, what am I saying? In For Us Your Love. In the first three films, he's allowed to be with a woman at the end, undisturbed. In Dr. No, he unmoors the boat from Jack Lord's Navy ship. From Us Your Love, um, they're left alone on the Venice gondola. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in Goldfinger, they're left alone. But starting in Thunderball, just as he's about to be alone with the woman, the uh, you know the government comes and rescues him and kind of coitus interrupts. You know what I mean? <laughs> so and they and they repeat that I think in You Only Live Twice. Starting in Thunderball, like he doesn't get to be happily ever after with a woman. What happens later with uh, the other films, I don't care about. But yeah, uh, Goldfinger was the last film where Connery got to enjoy the woman at the end. All right. And uh, well, you mentioned Thunderball. We'll pick it up next month with that. So once again, uh, the details on the webinar for the third installment of the uh, Connery Bond canon, Goldfinger. How do we watch? Okay. So I usually post the Zoom information the week before it's going to be on. So it's a Wednesday. The 19th, I think. The 19th. So I'll probably start posting it publicly like Monday the 17th, maybe sooner. But the bottom line is any time right before I go on at 6 p.m. on Monday night, uh, on Wednesday night, Eastern Standard Time, you should be able to easily find the information 
posted in all my social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, you know, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. Um, so, you know, that's where people are. But like right now, if they wanted the meeting information, it's not posted yet. All right. So then- just wait a couple days before the event. And definitely starting Monday, all that information will be posted publicly. Arlen, and it's a, f- a free webinar, so. ArlenSchumer.com, A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-E-R, ArlenSchumer.com. We'll talk again next month. Richard, thanks always for having me on. It's always fun sharing these things with you and your audience. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Coming up next time, Micah Dank returns to discuss the book of Revelation through the lens of astrotheology. Among the lampstands was like someone like the Son of Man. This reference is Aquarius, which is the sign of man, the Son of Man, with a golden sash around his chest. So that's a metaphor for the sun being an Aquarius. The sun is the golden sash around his chest. Hair on his head was white like wool, which comes from a sheep or a ram referencing Aries. His eyes were like a blazing fire. Now it's talking about the blazing sun in Aries. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is referencing Aquarius again. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.